You are listening to the Root Simple Podcast. On this episode of the Root Simple Podcast, I speak with Johnny Sanfilippo about the opportunities and challenges of inhabiting suburbia. Before we get to the interview, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers Robert G., Anne F., Dan F., Heather E., Lynn G., K., Scott G., Kellyan, Stephanie L., Erica R., Kelton M., Kyle P., Nicholas H., David and Sandy S., Eric of Garden Fork, and supporters Michael W., Johnny S., Dutch Girl, Mary H., Stephen T., Brad and Stacy, and Johan. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcasts and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. Johnny describes himself as an amateur architecture buff with a passionate interest in where and how we all live and occupy the landscape, from small rural towns to skyscrapers and everything in between. And now my conversation with Johnny Sanfilippo. Well, Johnny, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time on the podcast here, and uh, for full disclosure, you're the wonderful person who shot a video of us a few years ago that, that went viral. Uh, and you also have a very interesting and provocative blog called Granola Shotgun. And occasionally we exchange emails, and you sent me one in the past week that was interesting, sending me to a, a recent blog post of yours. And I just want to read what you said in the email uh, when we had a little bit of back and forth. You said, I threw myself into the Congress for New Urbanism and the Strong Town Movements, hoping that we would make Main Street, Norman Rockwell, Mayberry-type towns possible and legal again. Turns out, not so much. I've come to the unexpected and reluctant conclusion that we're going to have to inhabit the suburban landscape we've inherited, like it or not. David Holmgren is now my to-go-to guy for what might that might look like. Uh, what, what, where have you been heading with, with Granola Shotgun, and, and why, is, why do you think suburbia is, is the way to go now? Okay, so um, just so that people know my perspective to start with, um, I love small town America. I love little main streets with little shops and a little apartment upstairs, and then you kind of turn the corner away from main street, and then there are little duplex houses, and then you go another block, and then there's single family homes, and you go a few more blocks out, and the lots get larger, and uh, the homes get a little bit fancier, and then you go a little bit farther out, and then suddenly you're in a farm field. That, that's how we used to build everything in America a century ago. Uh, and it provided a full spectrum of possibilities in a, in a very compact space so that if you wanted a studio apartment above a bakery, that was available. If you wanted a, a five-bedroom house on a, on a half-acre lot, that was available. And those two things were within walking distance of each other, that you could have the in-town experience, that you could have a suburban experience. You can even live on a small farm a mile outside the main street. That, that every kind of thing that you wanted was available at, at a price point you could manage, right? You know, the more money you had, the better the your accommodations could be. But there was always a place for the, the shop clerk to live, the, the, the starter apartment, the starter home, the retirement college, and all the nicer stuff in the middle. It was all available. And we used to build complete towns. And you could absolutely have a car, and lots of people did, but you didn't need it. It was, a, it was, the default was people walked around, you could ride a bicycle, very often there was a train station or something that could get you to the next town or the next city further away. And I love those places. I mean, those are magical places to me. And I am guilty of romanticizing that life. It wasn't perfect. There were all kinds of problems. But if you compare that kind of town building to the default stuff that we've got today, uh, you you know you go out to the far edge of the metroplex and there's a suburban subdivision and all the houses are kind of extruded and squeezed out and it's all you know spray on synthetic stucco and you can't walk to anything. Um, all of the three hundred thousand dollar houses are in one gated community. All of the six hundred thousand dollar houses are in a different gated community. Uh, there are the garden apartment complexes that are way over there uh, and then you have to drive to some you know drive through strip mall. Jiffy Lube environment on the side of an eight-lane arterial. I find that distressing. I find that soul-numbing. I don't want to live in those places. And I thought, well, if there are people out there that are trying to build Main Street towns again, I kind of want to get on board with whatever their program is. 
And I did that for years. I mean, I traveled all over the country uh, trying to figure out how we can get back to that old building model. And what I realized is we can't. That's not an option. That, that the society that built those towns, that doesn't exist anymore. And we can't go back to it. So then I started asking myself a different question. And it goes back to something that you and Kelly had, uh, had articulated very clearly for me when I, when I saw you at your house some years ago, which is homes used to be productive, that families were expected to operate businesses out of their homes, to have productive gardens, to, to have fruit trees and to keep chickens in the backyard. And, and every bit of that is now not just illegal, but, but socially repugnant. And I'm trying to figure out how we can take the stuff we already have, the kind of the low-grade suburban stuff I don't like, and and retrofit it quietly without attracting the attention of uh, the authorities or or you know people who might object, and and sort of get back to household productivity within the crappy landscape that we're stuck with. That's kind of where I'm coming from now. And uh, I mentioned David Holmgren; he's this guy in Australia who's kind of um, showing people that you can do all sorts of things without breaking the rules that um, that will make your house more productive. And that's that's what I'm heading toward. Let's get back to why it doesn't work, because uh, both you and I actually live in walkable, traditional sort of communities, but they're painfully expensive. And hideously expensive. Hideously, hideously expensive. expensive. I mean, I, the joke I heard was you just take a house in the Midwest and add a million dollars and you, you get where you, you're in San Francisco. I'm in, in the older part of L.A. Um, but you, you have personal, because years on your blog, you were talking about these Rust Belt towns and this, the, the kind of like, you know, a lot of uh, uh, places like Cincinnati. Um, and you actually went so far as to buy a house in Cincinnati for $15,000. Um, tell the story of what happened, why you bought that house, and what happened uh, in that experience. So one of the, the sort of the common narratives that we have is that California is just weird and special and and uh, uh, extra messed up because of our politics and that's why we have the problems that we have here and i thought that by going to ohio which was a very middle of the road you know middle america kind of place with a different culture that i would be able to do all sorts of things there that i could not do here and what i discovered is that it's not different anywhere it's not different anywhere in america that the rules and the culture and the political dynamics are essentially the same there's a lot of superficial differences but when it gets down to zoning regulations and building codes and nimbies and it's the same the difference is that you have to add three or four zeros in california you can do you can be you can be up against the same institutional barriers in ohio at a lower price point but the dynamics are not different right mm -hmm. so um I have friends who were living in San Francisco. They were in a 600-square-foot, one-bedroom apartment, and they loved it. They, they were really happy. There was a great neighborhood. It was a good apartment. They had good relations with the landlady who was letting them live there for substantially less than the market rate because she, she valued them for reasons that didn't have to do with money, you know, that they were just good people to have in her building. And they were really happy there. They had their first child, and they were actually making it work in a 600-square-foot apartment. And then their second child was on the way. And they said, you know, we can't do this anymore. So um, they, uh, Steve and Stephanie, their neighbor right. Steve and Stephanie, and they're looking for a, a, a place to live in San Francisco that's just a tiny bit bigger so that they can accommodate two children instead of one. And, you know, it wasn't possible. Like, you know, the numbers didn't come close. And, and even if they had money to throw out a new apartment, there's no availability. There's just no vacancies here. Uh, and buying a house is out of the question. They are, people say, oh, why don't they just move to the suburbs? Well, you can go for 100 miles in any direction, and it doesn't really get better. Um, you can sometimes get more stuff for the same amount of money, um, but there are all kinds of compromises involving, you know, commutes that involve going over mountains and, you know, mm -hmm. prairies and all the rest of that song. So they, they made the rational decision to leave California. Uh, and I was friends with them, and I said, you know, if, if what you love about San Francisco is the great, you know, historical architecture and the walkable neighborhoods and the beautiful public parks and, and, 
and all that, you know, that exists in middle America. That exists in Buffalo and, and Pittsburgh and, and Cleveland and, and Cincinnati. And I said, by the way, I, I just bought a house in Cincinnati and I paid $15,000 for it. Now it's, it's kind of a piece of crap. It was just, a, it wasn't habitable. You know, the, the pipes and the wires had been stripped out of it by thieves and it was in pretty bad shape, but it was in this amazing neighborhood that uh, had fallen on hard times and was coming back. And I can sense that. And I'd spent five years getting to know Cincinnati, going back there and making friends and visiting it uh, because I thought it was like a really interesting place because it reminded me so much of my neighborhood in San Francisco when I first came here a long time ago, because this was the bad neighborhood, you know, uh, the mission district was, uh, was the rundown scary place that white people didn't want to live in. And, um, I kind of liked it when it was rough, you know, and I was like, well, where, where else could I go that I could find what that was and maybe make some improvements, you know, maybe take a, an uninhabitable 700 square foot shotgun shack and clean it up. Uh, and, it could be it could be a good project for me personally. So Steve and Stephanie uh, took my advice. We went there together. I introduced them to people. Uh, they wound up renting a very nice house a few blocks away from where my place was that had been renovated by uh, some young friends of mine who, who live in Cincinnati. And they were they understood. They totally got it. You know, the weather isn't quite as good uh, as California, but you know. If you if you subtract like the eight hundred thousand dollars from the cost of where you're living, suddenly a little bit of snow in the winter is not so bad. They could suddenly afford to like take vacations to warmer places. They were going to buy a house there, but I, I told them that they should just rent for a year to really get to know the place before you rush in and buy a house. And they they did learn a lot that 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 year that they were living there, and they they did learn to love Cincinnati and its people and the and the culture and, and all that kind of stuff. And they did understand what I was saying, but that is San Francisco, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, I had some problems with the house that I bought. I hired a local architect, uh, you know, an Ohio guy, and he was part of a design build team. And they specialize in uh, a kind of house that's traditional in form, but has modern elements. And they're, uh, they're passive houses so that they're super insulated. You barely need to use any energy at all to keep them warm or cool. Uh, and they're beautiful and they're modest. They're not big homes. And what I was told is that, you know, in order to make this little house that I bought work financially and structurally, um, there's no way that we'd ever get the money back out just by fixing what was there. That the thing that made sense is to take that 700 square foot, one story house and make it a 1,400 square foot, two-story house. And it just so happens that the houses on either side and across the street and all up and down the block were already two-story homes. These were all homes that were built in the 1890s. My house was the runt on the block. And so it seemed like a pretty easy thing, you know, to add one story to make that little house the same size and shape as all the other homes. It turns out it's illegal. And it wasn't just a little bit illegal. It was massively illegal. There were just so many rules and regulations that had piled up in Cincinnati over the decades that that it just wasn't possible to do that legally and getting and we spent a year and a half just going through committee meetings trying to get approval for this um, you know this unacceptable thing that we were attempting to do and that wasn't necessarily the worst part of the experience it was the reaction of the neighbors that that made me ultimately stop trying half of the people in in the neighborhood thought that I was going to be an absentee slumlord that was going to dump unsavory tenants onto the property and, and pull the neighborhood down. And you know, keep in mind, when I bought it, I paid $15,000 for it. It was uninhabitable. It had no pipes or wires. I, I don't know how I could have made that worse, right? But that was the perception. The other half of the people in the neighborhood assumed that was a carpet bagging, gentrifying, yuppie, hipster, whatever, that it was going to ruin the neighborhood for the hardworking uh, long-term residents that had lived there, that I was going to somehow drive them out. And I, I did not know, respond to any of that. I just, I just didn't, I didn't get it. You know, I mean, how could both of those things be true simultaneously? And I ultimately gave up on the project. Now, for the year and a half that I was tinkering with this house, Three different developers approached me and wanted to buy the house. And I said no to the first two because I, I said, no, I, I'm going to make this work. So I'm just going to stick it out. By the time the third one approached me, I'm like, yep, 
get off my hands. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, because I realized that an ordinary person, even with hired help with an architect who understood the rules and a, and a good uh, contractor to do the work, it's just too hard to navigate the system and it's too unpleasant to deal with the, you know, the social context. And I was happy to sell it for a tiny bit more than I bought it for, but I actually lost money by the time I paid all the fees and stuff. So um, I learned, don't ever try to change anything ever again. It's not worth it. Oh, and by the way, in that year and a half that I was working on this little shack, three blocks away, a big apartment complex, you know, 131 units, you know, parking garage, all the, that was built three blocks away, right? And people hated that just as much as the thing that I was trying to do with my little shack, except if you do something that's large enough and expensive enough, somehow you can cut through the bureaucracy. And I learned a lot of lessons in that experience. So that kind of sums up like where we are culturally. Well, I, I think you said in the blog post that basically it's a traditional neighborhood with a 1950s zoning mentality overlaid on it. And that seemed to be what you were running up against, right? But that's the default everywhere in America. You know, like you take an 1890s traditional neighborhood with these beautiful old buildings that were built by rich people once, and then the neighborhoods declined for all sorts of reasons for decades, and it just got worse and worse and worse. Now it's starting to get better again. And uh, it's illegal not only to build more of that traditional urbanism, but it's illegal to even modify what's there. You kind of have to just leave it trapped in amber. Which is which is fine. I just didn't know that going in. Well, you know? what did the developer who bought it from you do with it? So I have two uh, interpretations of this guy. On the one hand, he was a lot smarter than I was. He understood the rules, not just the written rules, but the unspoken rules of how you do this sort of thing. He grew up in Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati is a provincial town. Like, you know, in San Francisco and L.A., nobody's from these places. We're all from someplace else. We all come to these cities you know from other places in cincinnati people are really preoccupied with where you went to high school which which church your mom and dad went to like that's incredibly important um they don't really like outsiders and he was a local kid and he also organized uh, enough local investors that he pulled together other people's money and he bought eight or nine homes on this one block you know, along with my house and uh, he understood, don't try to change the houses. You clean them up, you paint them, you know, you put lipstick on them, you make them presentable, you get them functional so that they work, and then you sell them to owner-occupants. That's the thing that people really want. That's what the city will allow, and that's what the neighbors want. They want the homes to be occupied by the people who buy them. And I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for his political uh, understanding. And, and for his ability to make these deals work. And because he bought eight or nine buildings all at once and fixed them all up at the same time, he created a dynamic where people felt that the whole block, the whole neighborhood was really beginning to move in a good direction. So, you know, I, I learned a lot from him just by watching what he did. On the other hand, I know what my house needed in terms of the problems with the foundation, the problems with the dry rot and the wet rot and all the mechanical problems. And it just, that house was just one enormous pile of, of deferred maintenance and structural uh, and mechanical problems. And I know what it was going to cost and I know how long it was going to take to fix that stuff properly. He flipped that in a couple months. There's no way he could have addressed all the stuff that was really wrong with that place, right? And he then sold that house for $97,000 to somebody. So whatever the product was, it looked good, right? I mean, it looked attractive and it, it, it met that middle-class standard and somebody was happy to purchase it. But whoever bought that house is buying an awful lot of deferred maintenance underneath of that new lipstick that they're not aware of. Um, so, you know, I, I can't fault the guy because he did what was required and, and acceptable. But I also think that, you know, whoever bought that house is getting a raw deal, and they don't know it yet. And yet he also didn't address the maybe the need for more housing, too, because if it, am I mistaken in thinking that at one point you were going to do kind of a duplex uh, situation with that house? Was that a possibility so that it would have housed more people maybe than it, it does now? So this neighborhood, again, it was built in the 1890s. Half the houses on that block were built originally as duplexes. They were called mother-daughters. 
so that there'd be like a one-bedroom apartment on the ground floor and a one-bedroom apartment upstairs. There'd be two front doors. And they were designed with a little vestibule so that typically uh, uh, an extended family would live in one. And mom and grandpa would live upstairs. Grandkids would live downstairs and there would be cousins. And I mean, all, all my old Sicilian relatives, you know, back in, in New York uh, lived in homes like this in Queens and, and whatnot. Uh, and it was really very flexible um, kind of a, a living arrangement because it allowed multiple people to pool their resources and uh, and either own or rent uh, a flexible space that, that worked on many levels. And I thought, well, let's just revert to that old building model. Like I said, the houses next door were already in that form. But when you when you look at the modern suburban zoning that was overlaid on top of this historic neighborhood, and then you add in the cultural attitudes about slumlords and gentrification and all that, that that wasn't really an option. So that that whole thing just stopped. Uh, so no, I there was you could say that you took a, a house that was uninhabitable and the developer the flipper made it habitable. So you were adding one unit of housing on it, but. Um, it could have been a lot more. By the way, there are vacant lots and uh, houses all over this neighborhood that could easily be modified so that you know you could double the number of housing units in this 1880s, 1890s neighborhood um, without having to build big apartment complexes. You could just add one more floor to each of the homes or put a little cottage in the back, and you could double the number of units in this area. But that's just not possible. And this, of course, reflects to the, you know, the California problem that we're having now. Yeah, exactly, which I was going to mention, because we both live in places where there are epic uh, not-in-my-backyard NIMBY battles. So have you been, have you given up on that one? I mean, is that is that a winnable battle or, or not? I have given up on it, but I've also found creative workarounds. And that sort of takes us back to Stephen Stephanie, who left San Francisco, tried Cincinnati for a while, and then they boomeranged back with my assistance. And that's a whole different story. And it kind of addresses the, the affordability problem. In, yeah, in well, from, from let's talk I'm about that, because that, that's the house in Sebastopol, right? I mean, so why don't you tell yeah. the story of that of that house and where it is, because people listening to this might not know the, the where that is and the relationship to San Francisco. Okay, so I'm in San Francisco. And if you go 50 miles north, so that's over the Golden Gate Bridge, past Marin County into Sonoma County. 50 miles north, uh, not too far from the coast. It's it's sort of it's not on the beach, but it kind of hugs that coastal area. Uh, it's 12 miles from the from the Pacific Ocean, and it's the wine country, and it's incredibly pretty and very expensive and very fancy schmancy. Uh, it didn't used to be. It just used to be like back in the 70s. You know, there were always like hippie commune stories that people would just go into the woods and live in Volkswagens and stuff. That that's that's the area. It's just become fantastically expensive in the last uh, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. It's gotten very, very pricey. And uh, I've always liked the area. I always wanted to own property. I don't have that kind of money. I mean, I, I, I have like very, very little money. I've never made much money. Uh, I was lucky to come to San Francisco at a time when it was just a lot more affordable. And, uh, and instead of just staying in a rent-controlled apartment, I, I pulled together some friends and we bought a small apartment building and we each took one of the units and we're all still here. Um, so I've sort of been insulated from the crazy price increases, but I have friends who lived up in Sonoma and it's beautiful and we'd go up and spend the weekend and we'd visit them. And, uh, I'd always wanted property there, but couldn't afford it. Then we had the 2008 financial crisis and, uh, properties crashed and banks failed and, uh, nobody was lending, nobody was buying. And I found the smallest ugliest, most rundown, decrepit, sad little house <laughs> on a half acre surrounded by, you know, vineyards and orchards and the neighbors have horses. And it was just like some kind of freaky, perfect storm where you know, nobody with very little money was able to buy this house. And I, the only reason that I was able to afford it is that it, it was basically uninhabitable at the time and nobody had any money and I had cash on hand. So I, I was able to buy that house. And that was eight years ago. And uh, little by little over the last eight years, I gutted it room by room, made incremental improvements, not with debt. This is all cash basis, you know, opening up, you know, pulling down the nasty old paneling and finding the, the, the studs in the walls. No insulation. So I insulated it and put on a new roof, replaced all the windows one by one. Um, 
and did this all very economically. You know, again, usually what people say is, well, you, you get a home equity loan and you borrow lots and lots of money and you, you bang it all out. You do everything all at once and granted countertops and stainless steel appliances and all. And I didn't do any of those things. I actually kept it really, really simple and brought the house up to a good standard uh, simply. And I avoided debt and there's no mortgage on this house. Right. So and of course, since 2008, all the properties have reinflated and they're now much more expensive than they were in 2007, which is a whole other story. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for the next crash, but that's, that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, so I had this property and uh, I was renting it out to a couple from Canada. Uh, they came down from, uh, from BC and they were wonderful and they were just great people. And they were there for about four or four, four or five years and they left, they went back home to Canada and the uh, house became available. And I talked to Steve and Stephanie in Cincinnati, and I said, you know, it's free if you want to come and live here, you know. And I'll, we'll, we worked on a, a price that they could afford that I was, you know, happy to take. And I knew they were going to be great uh, caretakers of the property, and the neighbors would love them. And it's worked out pretty well. So uh, at the moment, a, a two-bedroom, one-bathroom, 700-square-foot house, nothing special, rents for at least $3,000 a month. In, in Sonoma County, and wow. you're and you're really really lucky to find anything uh, available at any price. There just isn't that much availability. We also had some tremendously bad forest fires uh, some right. months ago. Right, seven thousand homes burned in one day. So those are seven thousand families that suddenly needed a new place to live in a town where there were no vacancies at all. You know, it's not like you can go to the next town or even the next county and find something. All the counties are in the same, you know, financial situation because they're just—it's been impossible to build things for so many decades. So um, instead of charging Steve and Stephanie the market rate, uh, we talked about two thousand dollars, which was a thousand dollars less than the market rate. They didn't have to arm wrestle anybody to get into the building, and I was thrilled to have them. And because I don't have a mortgage, because I don't have debt, I don't have to squeeze every last dime out of my tenants. And two thousand was a comfortable price point for them and their budget, but. What they really wanted to spend was fifteen hundred, and I said, "What can we do to get your rent down to fifteen hundred? Now, by the way, I, I'm going to be drilling a new well uh, next month. That's a twenty thousand dollar thing to drill a new well, right? Because the old well is seventy five years old and it's mm -hmm. going to collapse any day now. Uh, I put on a new roof a couple of years ago. That was a twenty thousand dollar roof. There's property taxes, and you know, so I actually do need some income from this uh, to to pay for that these upgrades and stuff. So it's not like I'm making huge amounts of money." So they have a friend, uh, Brian, and he had spent the last five years uh, in Japan working and living in Japan, and he was coming back to the States. Uh, Japan is a fantastic place, but the Japanese just do not accept foreigners for any length of time. That Sooner or later, you just have to go home. They don't want you there permanently. They don't do immigrants. So he was coming back to the States, and uh, they decided to take him on as a roommate. And that would get their rent down to fifteen hundred. It would allow Brian a place to live in Sonoma for five hundred dollars a month, which is almost free. He's a school teacher. It's hard to find you know, a place to live that a school teacher can afford. And it all worked. The problem is that in a two-bedroom, one-bath house, it's with two kids. Right? It's difficult to take on a roommate. There's just not that much space. And uh, I came up with a workaround that everybody really liked. Uh, the, the, my first impulse was to do an accessory dwelling unit. So it's a 700-square-foot house on a half acre of land. There's a tremendous amount of space to build mm -hmm. a very small cottage. And I hired a local architect, and we kind of work, worked through what that would look like. And uh, it was just fantastically expensive and complex, and the rules were endless. And uh, it, it was going to cost something like $60,000 just in paperwork. You know, just just in uh, just in application fees and impact fees and permit fees and and I'm like I'm not spending sixty thousand dollars on paperwork and then I said well what's the what's the cottage going to cost and the architect was like well maybe two hundred thousand ish if we're really frugal and it's like three hundred square feet and then I talked to a neighbor across the street who has a, a similar house to mine he's on a half acre as well. And he's actually building a 1,000-square-foot addition onto his home. Not a separate home, just a, an addition onto his existing home. And he hired an architect, and, and he said that 1,000-square-foot addition is going to cost $400,000. Right? And the problem is you can't find contractors. Like There's just no way to find people who will show up and do this work because they're busy building yep. other things. Tell me about it. Yeah, so you know what that – nobody yep. will answer your phone. Right. Right. 
And it's funny, though, because we have this housing crisis, and yet everybody's busy building things. And you think, well, those two things don't – if they're building things, shouldn't there be lots of new housing? And somehow we're doing lots of new construction and no new housing. I, I don't understand that, but that's where we are. Mm-hmm. So, so I said, well, I don't want to break the law. I mean, I don't want to build anything illegal. I, I don't want to be liable for that. I don't want to you – know, I, I don't want to do anything that breaks any laws. So I said, what are we allowed to do legally? And uh, you can build a garden shed. As long as it's got no electricity, no plumbing, no heater, no mechanical systems of any kind, and as long as it's not more than 120 square feet and it's not more than 12 feet tall, you are allowed to build a garden shed. So I found a company in Canada that built these really beautiful cedar kit sheds, 10 feet by 12 feet, showed up in panels, bolted together in a weekend. I super insulated it. I trimmed it out with really good quality uh, materials on the inside, a wood floor, uh, uh, lots of windows. It's really nice. Furnished it beautifully, painted it. Uh, it has no electricity. It has no plumbing. It's, it's, it's a shed. It's a really super insulated, very attractive shed, but it's a shed. And uh, Brian, Stephen Stephanie's roommate, decided to store some things in the shed. He stores a bed. Uh, he stores some shelves and a dresser. He stores uh, a chair, mm-hmm. a desk. Uh, he stores his clothes there. Uh, he doesn't live in it. That would be illegal. Uh, that would be uh, I would be a terrible slumlord, uh, and they would be hideous, unsavory tenants that were going to lower property values and uh, bring crime to the neighborhood. Uh, he lives in the main house. That's where the kitchen is. That's where the bathroom is. Uh, there's a giant back deck that I recently built, and there's a, the, the barbecue grill and the pizza oven and the giant harvest table and the outdoor couches and all that and the, the covered shade areas and all that. Um, so nobody lives in a shed. That would be horrible. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Steve and Stephanie are living in a fabulous place for $1,500 a month. Uh, their, their friend Brian is living in a fabulous place for $500 a month. Uh, and uh, I'm getting $2,000 a month in rent, and everybody's happy. Uh, and we did not once interact with anybody of, uh, in a, a position of authority. And if somebody from the county were to show up with a clipboard, right, looking for violations, they really couldn't find them. Yeah. Right. And people should actually, it's on your, your blog, people should take a look at it. It's quite a beautiful piece of land uh, that you've also, and we talked a little bit about this before I started recording, which is the idea of making a house the center of productive activity, which you've done with this house. Why don't you describe what the yard looks like? Because uh, you've certainly done that. So um, it's a half acre. So it's not a huge amount of land. Uh, it's, It's large by city standards, certainly, but it's not what you would call a farm. It's, it's not big enough for that. Um, but because the house is so small, it's this little two-bedroom, one-bath house that was built in like 1941, uh, most of the land is still land. You know, there's not a, the house doesn't have a big enough footprint, uh, and the house is very close to the road. So most of the land is in the back. And when I purchased the house in, uh, in 2010, at the bottom of the last economic cycle, nobody wanted it. It was just in such bad shape. But the the land was spectacular. It has a really good southern exposure. Uh, There are lots of trees on other people's properties, but I get get full sun most of the day. Um, There's a very gentle slope so that there's good drainage, but it's mostly flat. And it had just been sort of just gone weedy when I had purchased it. So I started out uh, by building up the soil putting in a huge amount of organic compost and um, uh, manure. I planted an orchard. The first thing I did was I planted the fruit trees, uh, a few dozen fruit trees of every kind, apples and peaches and pears and, uh, you know, the plums and whatnot, uh, because the trees take the longest to mature. Uh, They're also, once they're established, you don't really have to fuss with them too much. You have to prune them once a year and you do have to deal with them periodically, but they're they're not as delicate as, uh, as annuals, you know. Um, because I wasn't actually living there. I was driving up there once in a while to work on the house. I went to the orchard to get established first. Once the orchard was established, then I put in the vines, the kiwis and the grapes. And once the kiwis and the grapes started to establish themselves, then I began to do the berry bushes. Uh, there were, uh, and there were uh, pomegranates and persimmons and guavas. Uh, and again, those are the kinds of things that once you plant them and get them established, they don't need that much care. Uh, they do need water and the droughts and stuff, but you can, you know, they're not as dainty as cucumbers. So 
uh, and this is over a period of years, like every year I would make a big push to do another wave of this stuff. Uh, and now eight years in, we've gotten to the point where we have 13 raised beds for veggies with really deep soil. Um, a lot of, um, you know, whenever anybody is doing any kind of uh, wood chipping in the neighborhood, I, I'm right there like, oh, I, I don't bring those to the landfill, bring all your wood chips to my place, I'll spread them out in the garden. Um, there's a little strip between my driveway and my neighbor's driveway that was just weeds. And I transformed that into kind of a permaculture style food forest. Uh, not because it was the, 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 the biggest spot in the garden, but because it's the one that people walk by every single day, you know, that was right by the front door in the driveway. And if you, if you put things in places where people pass constantly, they'll tend them more. And so I put in, um, espaliered, uh, fruit trees along a hog wire fence. And then in front of that, I planted another row of more fruit trees and down in between those, I put in the, the berry bushes and then on the ground, I had another layer of stuff that would grow and you know, sort of squash that does the ground covery stuff. Uh, so little by little over the last eight years, like almost all of that half acre is some kind of productive food. Uh, and, and we're, we're ramping that up as well, uh, in the future. Plus, you have a small house, you have a lot of land, you can do outdoor spaces, you know, outdoor decks and shade, shaded areas and, and outdoor rooms so that most of the year in this part of California, you can, you can live outside pretty much all the time and it, you know, take all your meals out there, cook all your meals outside. Uh, and uh, Steve and Stephanie have been magnificent gardeners and entertainers. We're constantly pulling the neighbors in and inviting them to hang out with us because uh, social capital and, and goodwill with your neighbors is actually really critical to me. But um, your accountant might say, to get back to your relationship with them, is you're missing out on $12,000 a year, right? What's up with that? I am. I also don't have a mortgage, right? So you have to think, well, so what would you normally do? Uh, the accountant says you put as little money down on a property as you possibly can. You borrow the maximum amount because there are tax advantages to having the mortgage interest uh, you know, that you can deduct from your other uh, expenses. And uh, you take as much rent as you possibly can. You know, just if you can get 3000 if you can get 3400 you know, whatever, please, by all means, jack it up. Uh, the tenants will pay if this group of people won't pay there will be people who will line up the first time i offered this place uh to rent i put a list uh craigslist ad 76 people showed up on, on that first day wow all all just with every one of them had a horror story about how they desperately needed a place to live and these were not poor people these were dentists and uh, you know and, and people who had good incomes you know and it was it was really painful for me to have to talk to so many people and tell them what i i I, I don't have 76 houses. I have one. You know? so, so in terms of the, uh, the accounting, uh, it's a really bad accounting practice that I'm, I'm engaging in. But there's another way of looking at investments. So my, uh, my gurus, my role models are, are my friends Callie and Lou who live in cinema. And Lou never went to college. He's, uh, he's a handyman. You know, he's the kind of guy that people will call up when they need uh, some little projects done at their house because he's really good with his hands. He can look at a problem and just fix it, you know, uh, whereas normally you, you call up a, a big contracting firm and th these projects are small potatoes. They can't be bothered. Uh, I, you understand this, Eric, don't you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, Callie and Lou, back in the early 80s, bought a really cheap rundown little duplex neighborhood in berkeley california and lou just fixed that duplex up little by little over the years by himself uh he rented out half of it uh when he was a bachelor he he shared his half of the duplex with um with roommates and he paid that place off in a few years and now he had a, a fixed up duplex uh with no mortgage with steady rental income and he saved his money and he bought the house next door and he did the same thing with that right and uh as time went by, his neighborhood improved, that property values went up. Partly, I think, because he was so good at improving these buildings and finding quality people to rent, you know? And he met Callie, they got married, they sold those two houses in Berkeley. They rolled that money over into a house in Sebastopol. They bought another house that he fixed up and rented, and then he bought another house that he fixed up and rented, and he has a whole, ch they have a whole chain of these properties. All of them were 
the crappiest, most rundown, miserable properties, and they always bought at the bottom of an economic cycle. Um, and he doesn't believe in having debt. He doesn't like mortgages. He said the, the accountants will tell you to leverage yourself, you know, to the maximum, uh, so that you can get these tax benefits. But he said, I don't really have an income. I don't have an income that needs sheltering. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know I'm a handyman. I don't. I don't. You know, if I had a four hundred thousand dollar a year job, I might be interested in, in the tax benefits. But I, I don't actually have wealth to shelter. Uh, and he also says that every time there's a boom, people take on lots of debt. They get very optimistic about how much things are just going to keep going up in value forever. And uh, as 2008 demonstrated, uh, if you don't own your home, if the bank owns the home, uh, you can get uh, in a lot of trouble financially if you can't make those bills. And he says he just doesn't have that problem. He has uh, the opposite situation, where when the economy crashes, he has cash on hand that he's been saving, and he can buy scratch and dent properties, uh, you know, in the, at the bottom of the market. And I basically used his financial advice rather than my accountant's. So when this bubble that we're in pops, I don't have to. I'm not going to feel it, right? And the other thing is that I have social capital. Like I don't have kids. I'm 50. I'm getting older. I'm not convinced that social security is going to exist in any meaningful fashion. I'm not convinced that 401ks are going to perform the way people are hoping that they will. I mean, the stock market goes up. That's wonderful. If it happens to crash just when you get old and you need that money and it's not there. eh. Um, So I see Steve and Stephanie and their kids as part of my long-term retirement strategy. You know, there's uh, it's more than just a landlord tenant thing. Now, I hope that they do well in life and that they come into money and that they buy their own home. Cause I've got a lot of other people like Steve and Stephanie in my life, you know, that I can sort of move around. Uh, and that's the, the next conversation that we're having is, you know, I have friends, Sarah and Andre and their little girl in San Francisco in a one bedroom apartment. They're waiting for Steve and Stephanie to do so well that they move on so that I can rent that house mm. to, to Sarah and Andre, you know, and their daughter. Um, so, there's there's the money and the accounting that kind of wealth and then there's like who's actually going to care about you in life who's actually going to be there to help you when you need them right what sort of pragmatic advice would you have for people who are you know renters right now in a really expensive city thinking about inhabiting suburbia as as we began this conversation with what what do you think they should do in order to make that happen and what 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 changes have to happen to suburbia or not to to make it more livable I don't think the suburbs are going to change. I don't think the rules and regulations are going to change enough to make a difference. I don't think the culture is necessarily going to change enough. Now, if you go far enough into the future, like 100 years from now, I think everything will be completely different. I'll be dead. I can't think that far in advance. you know. Uh, but if we're talking about the next you know, 20 or 30 years, I think we're really stuck with the, with the dysfunctional dynamics that we have. So... Um, I say that a lot of the suburbs that we now think of as being prosperous middle-class places are actually already experiencing steep decline, that all of the, uh, the, the middle class that's falling out of the middle class, that's going down because they're losing their jobs, they're losing their health insurance, their, their homes are being foreclosed, they can't keep up. Those people are being herded into the lower value suburbs that um, are in the least desirable places that are too far away from good jobs, uh, that that they happen to be the one closest to a landfill or a refinery or whatever, and and they're getting herded into these places. And you have to know what those places are and you have to avoid them, you know, because society is dumping people, you know, in in mediocre places that are just going to keep getting worse. It's sort of like what happened when the poor were dumped in the inner city you know, in a, in a previous generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to know where those places are because you, you can't fight that that trend. Um, there are other places that are expensive that, are, that might just keep getting more and more expensive and you're going to be pressed out of them. So there, you have to find that sweet spot. I like older suburbs uh, that don't have a million homeowners associations because if you're going to buy a home uh, in, uh, in a, a place on the edge of the metroplex because you believe that... Uh, that's the it's still expensive but you know if you just drive far enough away you know you can eventually find the decent house uh that's that's a trap you're going to spend too much money you're going to spend money you don't have uh it's it's the most likely thing to decline and that's also loaded up not only with municipal rules and regulations but private homeowner association rules that won't allow you to do anything decent with it 
So you have to avoid those places. And uh, you might have to wait for the next crash. Like I tell people, just save your money. This is a terrible time to buy anything. Save your money. Keep reaching out. Keep making connections with people. And when the opportunity presents itself, you want to be the person with no debt, with cash on hand, who's already identified the kind of the sweet spots of the, the older neighborhoods in the preferred places. It's sort of like buying the worst house in the best location. And it, that might take 10 years, right? Like, you know, if you're talking to a 28-year-old, you know, you, you might be 38 before you're actually in a position to do that. Um, I know a lot of young people who spend money they don't have on houses they must buy. And I, I don't think it's going to end well for them, you know. So I, there, I, you asked me my advice. What should people do? Keep renting, but, but try to maneuver yourself into a position where you're working with other people to keep your costs down, kind of like what Stephen Stephanie and are doing with Brian, you know, and with me. We're, we're all kind of trying to solve each other's problems in a pragmatic way. Um, you're not going to get a relief from the government or from a corporation. You, you really, we're on our own and we have to work together with our friends. Uh, some of us have a little extra money. Some of us are great gardeners. Piece together the, uh, the, the spare bits that you can find and, and create a life that's under the radar. Do you mind me asking your long-range plans? Because you and I are actually both in very similar positions. We're about the same age. We're in similar neighborhoods and big cities. What? Where do you see yourself in 10, 20 years? I, I think about this all the time. I, I don't know what the future brings. Like On the one hand, things could continue the way they are forever, uh, and things can just keep getting more expensive. And you know, being, quote, stuck in San Francisco is not a bad place to be stuck. Uh, you know, I live in a one-bedroom apartment here. You know, we bought this place long enough ago that you know our mortgage is almost paid off. It's nine hundred dollars a month. It's you know in a couple of years it'll be free. Uh, then again, we have earthquakes here. You know, and one earthquake could make this place go away. And instead of having a giant asset, I'll have an enormous liability because then I'll be on the hook to, at the very least, pay a lot of money to demo. You know, to do the demolition and to clear the building away, and then I have nothing. Right. So I'm I'm aware of that. Um, we also have earthquakes in Sonoma. You know? So the conversation that I'm having with Steve and Stephanie and other people like them is it would be nice to retire to Sonoma, you know, to have a, a paid off house with good people. Um, maybe I could live in the shed. You know, I would be really happy doing that. <laughs> I, I totally would. Uh, and have uh, younger people and their children around, you know, in the garden. Uh, and they're, they're on board with that. that. That's too far away to predict. Things are going to happen to their lives and they're going to go on to, to better places. But um, the conversation we're having now is maybe we should look to buy another house slightly farther away in a different earthquake zone, in a different forest fire zone, um, where we would have a, a yet another property that we could fall back on. So that's what we're actively working on now, that after the next market correction, you know, we're going to be buying another property. And I could see myself living in, in that kind of a country environment. At the same time, when we had those terrible forest fires, uh, Steve and Stephanie and their kids and, and a lot of other people that we knew in the country came into San Francisco for sh for shelter and safety because they weren't sure which direction the forest fires were mm -hmm. going to go. And they didn't know. And they, you can breathe the air. I mean, they had kids. They had to get out. So sometimes the city is the refuge, not the country. So I just want multiple possibilities so that how things shift in the future economically and physically, I have multiple places to fall back. And they're all really good options. Flexibility, in other words. Um, one yeah. other thing I wanted to ask you about, if, I, if you don't mind, is um, in the present, we're in a similar situation, too, and then we're in these extraordinarily expensive places, stepping over homeless people to get to our fancy cafes and things like that. And what I thought was interesting on your blog is you have a, a unique uh, firsthand perspective on homelessness because you've experienced it yourself as a child and a young man. Uh, could you speak to that? Well, um, I could get into some gory details. I think I should be a little bit more cautious how I phrase things. But um, my parents were teenagers when I was born. I was born in 1967. Um, my parents were very decent people, but they just were unprepared for for starting a family. They didn't have any money. Uh, both my mom and my, my father were from homes that had all sorts of difficulties. They didn't have a lot of resources to fall back on. It started out that uh, we lived in a in a Volkswagen van. It was like a little camper van. And as a little kid, we just drive around from national parks to national parks, from Florida to you know California. And, uh, and it, it was a romantic adventure for my parents. 
until it wasn't, you know, until it just became just unpleasant. And they fought and they divorced when I was a kid. And then it was just me and my mom. I, I, I never saw my father after that. He was just, he was just gone. Uh, and it was uh, my aunt was in a similar situation, my mother's sister. And she had a, a child and my cousin. And it, my mom and my aunt and me and my cousin wound up living in a car for quite a long time because they had to sort of pull together enough money to, to start over again. And there, there weren't any people that we could fall back on. Um, and so the sisters uh, each got a job at the same restaurant and my mom would work uh, one shift and my aunt would work the other shift. And there was always somebody back in the car to sort of look after me and my cousin. And we bathed in gas station uh, you know, bathrooms and uh, spent a lot of time in laundromats when it was cold and rainy and stuff and figured out where you can park where the police wouldn't bother you too much. Eventually, we moved on to really unpleasant apartments and we moved around a lot. Things eventually got a little bit better, you know, but that was that was one kind of experience uh, of homelessness. And eventually my mom remarried and we moved to, to New York and then settled in, a, in the suburbs of New Jersey. And there were problems with that marriage and my mom had more children and things got complicated and messy. And I left home when I was 15 uh, because I just found that being home was less pleasant than just trying to see what the world was like. And I wound up back in Los Angeles on my own as a 15 year old. There aren't that many things that a 15 year old boy can do to support himself on the streets of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Well, um, let's get back to what you're up to right now. Um, Granola shotgun, your blog, you're going to speak at USC. Is that, that right? You want to say something about that? So uh, a month or so ago, I was in Orange County at Chapman University, and I was asked to speak about the housing situation there. Uh, And uh, I'll be at USC, University of Southern California, on August 1st, doing another little spiel. And then I'll be in Miami. Uh, Again, people have asked me to go and speak in Miami and uh, just just talk about, you know, the housing situation on kind of a national scale. Uh, and I'm always happy to speak. And I, you know, I'm not a professional in anything. I don't have any credentials. But if people think that you know my little dog and pony slideshow is a value, I'm always happy to go and speak. Yeah. So I'll be uh, I'll be at USC on August first, giving a little spiel. Great. And the blog granolashotgun.com. Excellent, Johnny. Is there anything else that you want to talk about that we didn't touch on? No, I just I just love the way you and Kelly have helped me figure out how to move because you're one of my uh, primary role models of what you're doing in your home and your garden and how you're interacting with the community has guided a lot of what I I try to do myself. Well, the feeling's mutual, so you know we're thinking about our future too. So your your blog has been very uh, thought provoking in that that department. All right. Uh, if you're ever up in uh, Northern California, you got to come crash. Would love, love to, to see you. you. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you, Johnny. Right. Thank you. That was Johnny Sanfilippo. You can find his blog at granolashotgun.com. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are at Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on Stitcher. Thank you again to our many supporters. Our closing theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 